We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back. This is the 20th anniversary of the hit NPR news comedy program, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The anniversary show was last Saturday, presided over by longtime host Peter Sagal. Peter Sagal is coming to St. Louis this Sunday, where he'll be the keynote speaker at the Jewish Book Festival. It's also observing an anniversary, its 40th. Sagal should be right at home at the festival. He'll bring along his brand new book, The Incomplete Book of Running. Peter Sakel joins us by phone. Nice to talk to you, Peter. Oh, a pleasure to talk to you, Don. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the book. The ink is still wet on it, I believe. It is, pretty much. It came out uh, just this Tuesday of this week, and uh, it's it's still a little bizarre. You know, you write this thing, you work on it for a long time, and then all of a sudden it's sitting there in your hands, and now I'm just terrified that people might not like it because... I am a Jewish boy, and we're always terrified that we won't please everyone. <laughs> and guilty if you don't, right? Exactly. You know, I should have done more. It should be longer. <laughs> well, I just had it, found it on my desk this morning. I'm looking forward to it because I'm a big fan of Peter Sagan. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You mentioned you're a Jewish boy. That is well known, I believe. But given where you're going to be this weekend, Peter, and yes. what happened last weekend in Pittsburgh, um, and because of your own Jewish background, not much to laugh about these days. No, not at all. And it's funny, I actually started the book tour by coincidence, I guess, at a synagogue in Washington just last uh, last Monday night. And so two of my very first appearances are with Jewish groups. And it's an interesting time, of course, to be a Jew in America and to talking to Jewish groups, uh, particularly uh, if you are known for trying to be funny about the news. So it's a conundrum. It's as if... Uh, if God decided it wasn't as challenging enough to sell a book about running, <laughs> the most boring topic in the world, to a general population, they wanted me to make sure that we'd all be terrified and paranoid at the same time. So here we go. Here we go. As you say, it's a difficult time to be a Jew in the United States and in some other parts of the world as well, oh, obviously. Lord, yes. What uh, you know? What was your reaction to uh, what happened in Pittsburgh? What were your well, thoughts? Well, my reaction was the same as I think of, of, of anybody, which is... Uh, to use a phrase uh, redolent uh, in 20th century history, it can't happen here, uh, which was something we used to say for certain. And now we say as a question or a complaint, we didn't think this stuff happened here. And in fact, it had never happened here. As you know, this is the worst massacre of Jews uh, explicitly done as, a, as, a, as an act of anti-Semitism ever in America. And uh, it's quite terrifying. And uh, I think that it's just human nature that when somebody comes after one of your own or somebody who looks or acts or identifies the way you do, it just becomes a little bit more, maybe a lot more immediate. Um, I've always said that, uh, I mean, and I've said this with a sense of, I don't know, complacency maybe, that we Jews in America had made it. We have succeeded far beyond the wildest dreams of our immigrant grandparents and great-grandparents. My grandfather 
was born in the Jewish Pale of Settlement in Russia. He came here as a tiny child in the beginning of the 20th century. He achieved his dream of just running a small grocery store, a business of his own, which he loved. To know that his grandson would be a Harvard graduate and a national radio show host and a successful author, all this other stuff would have been amazed him. What else do, you know, what else would do we want for uh, Jews in America except the positions and the the prominence and the success that we've had, uh, disproportionate to our numbers. We all thought we had made it and that we had no more to worry about than, say, an Irishman, a person of Irish descent, yeah. would have to worry about a resurgence of anti-Irish you know, prejudice that was so prevalent in the 19th century. Yours it turns is, out that uh, we were maybe incorrect about that, and that's very shocking. Yours is truly an American story. Yeah. I mean, there's so many stories just like the one you just described. What, I, what I've been saying to people is, you know, we Jews have it made, and what we should be doing is we should be using our power and success and influence, because, you know, we, we've achieved that in this society, to, to look out for those people who don't have the advantages we have. And by that, I mean immigrants, and I mean Muslims, and I mean non-gender conforming people, the people who've been getting a lot of grief from very powerful people who should know better, and we should be expressing our solidarity and rising up to defend them. And I think the events of this last week show exactly how important it is. I mean, at this point, uh, quoting Bonhoeffer is is worse than a cliche. Uh, you know, first they came for the trade unionists, and I did nothing because I'm not a trade unionist. Well, that is playing out in real time, I think, um, for Jews in America. Uh, not that we didn't do anything when they came for the modern equivalent of the trade unionists, be it the Muslims or whomever, but uh, the the threat is real. Let's just say that. Is your brother a rabbi? He is. He's a rabbi in uh, Temple Emmanuel in Westfield, New Jersey. Don't know how he ever got into that line of work. <laughs> Have you talked to him about this? No, I haven't. It's been a busy week. Uh, no. This all happened on Saturday, but I, I, I spoke to him briefly about what would be appropriate for us to do at that first event. You know, what can we do? It's just a day or two after this massacre in a synagogue. We'll be in a synagogue. How can we address this? And we talked a little bit about that, but you know, he has his hands full because. You know, I can sit around and gas on about it on the radio. He has a congregation to look after, I'm sure many of whom are terrified physically. You know, my, my nephew, a 10-year-old boy, he went to Hebrew school, uh, I believe it was Sunday, the next day, and they had armed guards with guns who they called out to the synagogue, because who knows how many more people like that who've been listening to the same messages and have the access to high-powered weaponry, which apparently is uh, part of our way of life. Who knows how many people are out there and might get the same idea. Well, weapons, armed guards at synagogues is something that the president is recommending. What do you yes. think? Yes, well, I think that a world in which everybody has to pay for their own armed security or suffer the consequences is uh, the kind of world you find in places like Somalia or Honduras or failed states. And uh, my particular opinion is we're we're careening toward that kind of dystopia quickly enough without people in power deciding saying that not that is the solution to our problems, not in fact the natural conclusion of our problems. We shouldn't. I mean, I, I don't know how to put this, but one of the freedoms that we should cherish is, as Roosevelt put it, the freedom from fear, i.e. the fact that you can walk into your synagogue or your bowling alley or your school or wherever and not have to worry about violent attacks. And that is a freedom that I think we Americans, who supposedly so in love with our freedoms, are way too ready to give up. Wait, wait, don't tell me, of course, is a, a news comedy show. 
<laughs> you never know from this conversation. <laughs> no, yes, I've, my job I, is to be funny. Well, it, this is not a time to be funny, actually. I, I, I think we all agree on that. But I'm just wondering, how do you handle something like this in preparing for this week's show? I'm assuming it's, you're going to be recording it uh, later this week. How yeah, do you, we'll be recording. Yes. How, how do you deal with this? Well, I, I, I'll tell you, the simple answer, and it may sound cowardly, is we don't. We don't deal with it. And uh, this is something we had to learn. Because we can just go to the history of mass murders. Uh, the first time that this happened while we were on the air was a Columbine. And we were sitting around going, how in the world do we talk about the funny things in the news and be jokey about the news while this horrific tragedy, this, this massacre, this atrocity just happened? And it took us a while to figure it out. And the answer is we just don't talk about it. And we do it for a couple of reasons. The first reason is uh, there's nothing funny about it. And we see our job as being funny and entertaining and light and giving people a break. And you, if you just don't make jokes about those sort of things, I've discovered over, over the years that there are certain topics that nobody wants to laugh at, let alone are you know able to. And the second reason is, and maybe even more importantly, is that we found out our audience doesn't want to tune in to us on the weekend, uh, 11 a.m. I think it is in St. Louis, uh, and hear us bring up the same horrible thing they, that's been making them depressed all week. They want to hear us talk about other things. They want us to be funny. They want us to be cheerful. They want us to give them a break from all of that. You know, and, and public radio, as you know, tends to be very serious. We report about the serious things in the news. We don't shy away from it. Well, one hour a week, wait, wait, don't tell me, gives you a break. It's like the, it's like the, the, the one day of carnival, you know, in the medieval kingdom. You know, everybody, everybody gets to go nuts for one day, and then they're going back to the usual drudge. And we're that, you know, one hour carnival once a week. So we not only, you know, consider it uh, our obligation to ignore the hard in the news, we, we consider it uh, our, our sacred duty. But you don't have any trouble bringing up President Trump. No, we don't. <laughs> Although, you'd be surprised how hard it is to come up with something new to say about President Trump every week. Because he has a, let's say, limited repertoire, uh, although he expresses it in different ways. And there's just so many ways you can make, you can make the same points about him. You can make the same observations about him in a funny way. Um, and that's a challenge every week to figure out, okay, how can, how can we describe this? This particular outrageous act, this particular extraordinary statement, this particular, um, you know, clownish behavior in a way that didn't, you know, it doesn't sound like what we said three weeks ago. So it's, it's tough. It's a bit of a challenge. But I think people both want us to address what President Trump has been up to because they've been feeling certain things and they want to hear us give voice to those things. But they also want us to move on and talk about other things because, as many people have pointed out, he, he is dominating not only news coverage, but sort of public consciousness, and it can get to be a burden just to think about him all day. When you say we sit around and talk about what we're going to do, who is the we? How many people we are involved? myself and my staff. Uh, we have a, a, a wonderful group of people, about six or seven editorial people, producers, two technicians, and we do the show every week. Um, and, and we have these conversations quite seriously. Like, what do we talk about? What do we not talk about? Do we talk about this? Do we do two questions about Trump at the top, or is one enough? And if we do just one, which one will it be? And this thing that he did, is that too much like the other thing he did? What, what, what new thing can we bring to the conversation? And then we, also, we have very sometimes difficult conversations about that. 
And then we have to decide, when are we just going to leave Mr. Trump alone and move on to other things? Because we know that our audience also wants that. As I've said, they want us to you know, distract them, give them something to be amused about, something to laugh about, something they can forget about, well, everything for a little while. And that is, that is, that's something that happens every week at our show. And we're constantly dealing with our own feelings about it, what needs to be said, what should be avoided, when we just want to move on. And that's, it's sort of the challenge of the moment for us. Have you ever heard from the White House with regard to some of the things you've oh, said on the air? Never. And <laughs> we know why, because uh, President Trump has no idea NPR exists. Uh, this is true. We know this because during the campaign, which seems 100 years ago, but wasn't only two years ago, NPR News got very, very frustrated that every candidate from both sides in the primaries would come on NPR and make an appearance, except for Donald Trump, even as he was winning primaries. And they got really frustrated. They couldn't get him to come on the air. Uh, so they commissioned David Folkenflik, NPR's media reporter, to find out why. Why won't Donald Trump come on NPR? And the answer is he doesn't know it exists. And if he doesn't know it exists, he doesn't care about it, and nobody can convince him otherwise. So he's happy to go on the big TV networks because he watches TV, and he's happy to go on the right-wing Fox News-type places because those support him. But if you were to say to him, Mr. Trump, Mr. President, would you talk to NPR? It's a very widely respected news source. He'd know, who are they? He doesn't care. And um, so thus we are absolutely certain he's never heard anything I've ever had to say about him. You don't have any trouble drawing other people, though, celebrities uh, from uh, from all spheres. No, no. We've been very lucky uh, because uh, our show has been on the air so long uh, that we, we're very lucky that uh, that people like it. We've had a lot of celebrities who've come on the show because they like it personally. Tom Hanks, for example, mm -hmm. was one of our first big celebrities, and he's on the show because it turns out he, he's a really big fan. So we were able to get him on the show, and that's happened many, many times. I've, it's very gratifying to find especially people – I mean, like I once like was talking to Carol Burnett, who I grew up mm -hmm. worshiping as the greatest comedian of her age and of my childhood, and she told me she thought I was funny. I mean, imagine how great that was. And, and, and we've, we've, it's, but I will tell you that my favorite thing is when we have unlikely people on our show and can show a side of them that people may not know about. So when we had Christine Lagarde, who is the uh, head of the International Monetary Fund, a pretty dry thing, and she came on and we found out about her career as a competitive synchronized swimmer. I thought that was pretty awesome. Simone Biles you had on, which surprised me. I don't know why, but it did. John Kasich you had on recently as a repeat per, uh, performer. No, no. Well, he, we repeated that. He's only been on once. We repeated that yeah. during, a, during a week off. Yeah, that, that also is really fun. And, and I'll tell you why. Because as you know, as everybody knows, we live in a polarized time. And uh, people have really lined up very firmly on, broadly speaking, two teams, blue and red. And they tend not to think well of people on the other side. And I love it when we can get somebody who's in that broil, who's in that fight, you know, people know as a combatant, whatever his particular side. And we, we bring him on, and we don't talk to him about politics. We don't talk to him about policies. We talk to him about himself or herself, and he turns out that he's a very funny, charming guy who could tell a really great story, and he came across that way. And my hope is, is that people, after listening to that, they'll think whatever they think about him and his policies and his approach to politics, whether he's too much of a Republican or not enough of a Republican, whatever you may think. But you will now hopefully think those things about a person and not a caricature. And I think if we have any public service on Wait, Wait, it's, it's, it's helping, helping to accomplish that. I would agree. That was a, a very informative segment. Uh, how much pressure is on you to be funny as a person? As When you're out and about, do people expect you to be funny? Does that put any kind of pressure on you? 
Well, it does, but uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I consider, and it's tough. A lot of comedians uh, talk about this. Uh, Woody Allen famously refused to be funny in person. He just wouldn't. Uh, John Stewart famously went on the. Uh, I think it was Crossfire. Must have been 15 years ago now, and they were trying to make him be funny. And he looked at Tucker Carlson and said, "I am not your performing monkey." And I've been there. <laughs> I know what that's like. As people who've been listening to this conversation know, not everything I have to say is a joke. Um, however, I'll tell you what I do feel an obligation, and I too try to live up to, because one of the things I'm sure you know, Dom, if you're on the radio, you have a particularly intimate connection with your audience, more so, I think, than being on TV. TV, you appear on a glass screen, I used to say in a box in your living room. Now, of course, it's just as likely it'll be in your, in your lap. But there's a certain distant observation Radio, we're in people's kitchens, we're in people's cars, there are probably people who are listening to this right now in their cars alone, but for us. And because of that, people feel a real intimate connection to those of us who are lucky enough to do this for a living. We, we've been a part of their lives, we've been in their homes, in their cars, in their bathrooms. And so when people come up to me and tell me that they like what I do and tell me they enjoy it, whatever, I feel an obligation not to disappoint them. I mean, in the sense that you'd hate it if somebody like listened to me for X number of years and, and really liked me and liked my show, and then they met me, and because I was in a bad mood, I was a big jerk. Uh, and and uh, I don't want them to walk away and, and, and regret the time they spent. So I, I try to treat the people who I meet on a day-to-day basis who think of me as their friend because of this weird relationship you have with people on the radio. I try to treat them as my friend and try to make sure that they're not, they don't regret that emotional investment. And, of course, they'll say, you don't look at all like what I expected oh, you to look like. Absolutely, yes. No, I, and that's particularly true of me because I am I, I'm a, a little short-balled homunculus, and that's not what people expect apparently. So, And that's another thing, which is a blessing. I can say anything I want, and people won't be listening to me because they'll just be staring at me going, I can't believe that flat voice is coming out of that face. Well, I have to tell you that the picture they're using in connection with your book, and I guess it's uh, it's on the cover, you look pretty buff to me. Well, thank you. That may be Photoshop, but I appreciate that. Well, that's uh, because you do a lot of running, which is what the I book do. is all about. How yeah, did all that get started and why? Well, it, it all got started uh, in a, I mean, I had been running on and off, as I tell the story, since a teenager, but it was mainly off into my 30s, and then I was about to turn 40. And I decided that was terrifying because turning 40 means you're going to die. So I decided to run a marathon so I wouldn't die. That was really the extent of my logic. And I did. I ran the 2005 Chicago Marathon. And much to my amazement, decided that I wanted to do it again, but faster. And so I spent a whole bunch of years from then till now becoming a very serious runner and eventually a writer for Runner's World. I've traveled the country, done races. I've done 14 marathons and countless races, shorter races, and I met a lot of interesting people along the way. Um, and probably most, well, most vividly, I happened to have just finished the Boston Marathon in 2013 when the bombs went off. I was just 100 yards away. And that experience and a bunch of other things that happened in my family life inspired this particular book, which is about how running has helped me personally get through a lot of different things, um, literally getting through the middle miles of a marathon and more figuratively getting through a very difficult uh, divorce and stuff like that. And so in the, it's a book about running. Yes, I think running is good, and I talk about why it is good and why people should do it. But it's also a book about how, learning how to be, let's just say, stubborn and how to persevere, or what I call the practice of perseverance and how you can use running as a way of both 
escaping from your troubles, but more importantly, getting through them. You make no secret of the fact that you suffered a, a period of depression. Uh, oh, yeah. During more, that... more than a period. Let me think. I think I'm up to 53 years. So, yes. Yeah. Well, no, no, not 53 years, certainly. <laughs> but, but, but dealing with that, what advice do you have for people out there who might find themselves in this particular kind of situation? Running uh, the, might be one answer, but there has to be more to it than that. Yeah. I mean, and I, I mean uh, one thing that is absolutely true is that exercise is a natural antidepressant. So if you happen to be sedentary and feeling bad about things, one of the first things you should probably do is, is get some sort of exercise. It genuinely helps. It really does. It, there are chemical reasons. You can look up the science. But the most important thing, and this is why I sort of went public about this in a podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression, is that depression is, by its nature, extremely isolating. My friend John Moe, who hosts that podcast, puts it this way, like, depression doesn't want you to get help. Because it makes you think that you're weirdly, there's something weirdly wrong with you, that your problems are profoundly different from everybody else's, that, there's, that you don't belong in the world of happy people that you see on Facebook, for example, which is a terrible thing for depressives because everybody looks so happy on Facebook. Um, and so the first thing I want people to know, and this is why I went public about it, is that you are not unique, at least not in that bad way. I'm sure you are. everybody's a very special flower, but you, for having this problem, are not unique. You're suffering from something that a lot of people suffer from. And because a lot of people suffer from it, A, you don't have to feel bad about it, and B, there are ways to get help. And that ways, those ways differ for every person. You should find out what they are. Some people thrive with talk therapy. Some people thrive simply by changing their circumstances. Some people thrive with medication. Whatever it may be, go get it. Don't sit around and decide that you are so uniquely terrible that you don't deserve help um, because that is, as they like to say, the disease talking, not you. So that's what I want people to know. And, that, and, and, and also that a lot of the people who seem to you, you know, via Facebook or via people you admire in TV or radio, uh, a lot of those people who you compare yourselves to negatively, like, oh, if only I was X, as wonderful as X or Y, if only I had as great a family as that person, all those people are having their own problems too. They're just not talking about them. They're putting nice pictures on Facebook or smiling into a camera. And you should know, again, that, 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 that you're not alone and that there's no reason why you should feel worse about yourself than anybody else and, and go do what I've done, which is get the help you need. How about running a marathon in St. Louis in your underwear? Does that help well, alleviate depression? A marathon, I want to be very specific about that. This is in the book. I ended up in, it was actually connected weirdly to my divorce because my marriage was breaking up and my soon-to-be ex-wife was taking the kids away for a weekend. And I was, for really the first time, going to be like a divorced dad sitting around without my family around. And so I decided I didn't want to stay at home. So I went down to St. Louis that weekend to visit some friends. And, and I ended up running this thing called the Cupid Undies Race or the Cupid Undie Run. And that was a fundraiser for a childhood tumor foundation in which they got a lot of people on a February day. It was, you know, it was themed around Valentine's Day to come out in red underwear and run up and down Market Street in St. Louis. Um, and I did it. And it was the first charity race I had ever done. It was the first sort of goofy race I had ever done. I'm a serious runner, you know. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't go in for those kind of gimmick things. But I did it. And it was really one of the great races I've ever run. As I like to say, it's the only mile. It was a mile long, but it's the first mile I ever ran that actually mattered. Well, you're certainly serious about it. You point out in your book that you have run the equivalent of around the equator yes. <laughs> in your yes, lifetime. Yes, I still am. Isn't that weird? Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. One final question, Peter. I know you're busy and, and we'll have to go. 
Um, and I'm, I'm sure you get this question every time, but uh, is there a memorable moment over those 20 years with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me that just you keep going back to uh, maybe chuckle a little bit about? Well, I mean, there are a lot of amazing stories. We were reminiscing about them the other day. You know, at this point, it's 20 years, which yeah. means that every year there was an amazing story. I mean, uh, just recently, the uh, WBEZ in Chicago, where we're based, rebroadcast our first ever live show. It was done in front of a live audience in Salt Lake City in 2000. And that made me remember what that was like, because when we started the show, it was in a studio. We had no audience. And so just the terror of standing up in front of people and trying to actually make them laugh live without the help of editing was 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 terrifying. And then to think about the other places, and we've played Red Rocks in front of 9,000 people. We played to 20,000 people once at a free performance in Millennium Park in Chicago. We've interviewed two presidents and um, people in the news. We've interviewed heroes of my youth, like Carol Burnett or Dick Van Dyke or Leonard Nimoy. Or we, I mean, we've we've it, there's been so many amazing sort of adventures just to be a part of this because enough people out there, thank you all, may decided to make it a part of their lives, and I will remain forever grateful. Well, it's been a great run, and uh, we certainly hope it continues for a long, long time to come, Peter Sagal. Congratulations on the anniversary and, and all of your accomplishments. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing everybody in St. Louis on Sunday evening. And I look forward to seeing you. Thank you, Peter Sagal. Thank you, guys. He'll be keynoting the Jewish Book Festival at the Edison Gymnasium at the Steinberg Family Complex at the Jewish Community Center at 7 o'clock on Sunday. His book, once again, is The Incomplete Book of Running.